Please, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, as we still progress through the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And in an unusual step today, I am leaving the microphone on. Uh, I have been having a bit of a, a throat problem and so I'm having to tone it down I will leave the microphone on and for those who have heard me preach before you realise that is quite a, uh, uh, a change of procedure. So Luke chapter 8 starting at verse 26 we're looking at a probably a familiar passage to a lot of you but there's some interesting things I think we can bring out of that. Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 26, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would open our hearts and minds to your word. Lord, that you would teach us, instruct us, and bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 26 of Luke chapter 8 and they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. Now the setting here is, of course, that this is, this is immediately following the stilling of the storm. They've sailed from Capernaum across the Sea of Galilee. They haven't gone straight across. Capernaum is quite high up on the Sea of Galilee. They've actually sailed south a little bit as well. Okay, so They've sailed south and whichever way it is, west, uh, and down, but they've come a straight line across the sea. They haven't sort of come across and done a, a bend, they've come in a, in a direct line. And they've arrived at the country of the Gadarenes. We pretty well know exactly where this spot is. Okay? It's one of those fortunate things that's, you know, sometimes when you when you read a story in Scripture, you wonder, well, where exactly did this happen? But we know pretty much exactly where this spot is. And uh, when you see it, the beach is actually very narrow. It's got a very narrow beach, only you know maybe uh, eight to ten meters wide, and then immediately there are these very steep limestone cliffs quite sharp sharp, and, and reaching right quite high um, up out of the beach. Okay, so this is the scene. They've sailed across and they've pulled up on this narrow beach and this very steep slope up there and there is one particular promontory, one particular thing that juts out into the water. Uh, okay, and it's very steep. It's limestone. <coughs> it is full of natural caves and holes. That's an important thing to realise about it. And right up on the top, okay, there are oak trees growing, which is also important as we go further on this story. Oak trees. So you've got a, a, a forested area right up on top 
a very steep slope and caves and, 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 and tombs that have been built in there. The other thing that's interesting to realise is when this was. We think of it so often it's daytime. But if you put the chronology together, they were actually hoping to make landfall before dark and had been delayed by this storm and has had to finish the journey by rowing because there was a great calm. There was no wind at all. So it's now after dark. All right. Now, setting this scene for you, you've pulled up, it's dark. No street lights, just a bit of moonlight. You pull up and this area is full of caves and tombs. And in verse 27, and when he went forth to the, into land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time and wore no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. Get, you know, when I, when I sort of read this, I thought, this is more like a scene out of Stephen King. You know, this is horror story stuff. It's dark. You're in a cemetery and there is a stark, naked, long-haired, screaming man confronts you. Is this scary? I think this is seriously scary stuff. How, how powerful is this person? Well, we're told that this person broke the chains that people tried to control him with. What does he look like? Well, one thing guaranteed, he's not clean. He hasn't got a nice haircut. The fingernails haven't been trimmed. And it says in another passage in, in, in Matthew that he would sit crying and screaming in the tomb, slashing himself with rocks. You think this is a scary person? I think this is a terrifying person to meet. He comes and when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. Now this is interesting. He, the first thing he says is, What have I to do with thee? Well, yeah, that's a a strange sort of comment to make. What is he... He's actually saying... He's coming to Jesus and saying, we have nothing in common. Dead right. What have you and I got in common? Thou Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Rhetorical question. Because the answer is, Nothing. Nothing in common. But he says, I beseech thee, torment me not. Hmm. Now some will say that this is a reference to 
the, the fear the demons had would, that they would be cast into the pit. Yes, there's that. But I'll tell you, there's something else. Just Jesus being there was a torment to these demons. Yeah, well, what, you ever noticed the, the way people approached Christ? What did the, what did the, what, what did the unsaved people say when, when they meet him for the first time? They fall down and they worship and they say, I beseech thee, save me, thou Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. That's what the unsaved say. What do these demons say? Torment me not. Understand this. Evil men, or rather, e- evil men wish to get into heaven. Evil spirits just fear hell. They don't say, can we come back? They can't. They're trapped forever. And the one thing they're looking for is less torment. There is no upside for demons. There is no plan B. There is no maybe if. It's all bad news for them for humans for we people for the for mankind there is an upside there is a positive there is a chance that things can get better but for these fallen creatures there's nothing in view except torment that's sad that is so sad when you think about it that this is as good as it will ever get for the demons. Now, I've never ever thought of feeling sorry for them. And I think it must gall them to think that humans will pity them. But it's true. This is the best they will ever have. And that's sad. So this demon-possessed man, it says in verse 29, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for oftentimes it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and fetters, and he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. We'll come to the condition of this man in a moment, but it's, it's, it's one, of the <coughs> one of the very well-known passages here. Verse 30. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. What is thy name? Legion. Now, a Roman legion was 6,000 men. Does that mean there were 6,000 demons? Mark records that there were 2,000 pigs involved. Does that mean there were 2,000 demons? I, I... don't think either of those is, a, is a, a, a way you can work it out. I think this was simply the way the, these creatures were expressing themselves. How many of them were there? There was an army of them. Lots. Lots and lots and lots. And, and so a, a, an expression is used here. 
a legion of them. How many, too many to count off, offhand, I think is what we're getting at here. But it's interesting, <coughs> the expression that's used. It says there's a legion. He doesn't say a mob or a rabble. A legion. Do you know what that implies? Organisation. It implies structure. It implies a command system. These demons were there, but they were not there just as a loose aggregation. They were there organised, commanded and ready. Make no mistake, when you consider the forces of darkness, believe it, they are organised, commanded and ready. And I will say to you that they are a lot better organised than a lot of Christian churches. They are a lot better organised than, than we people who are opposing them. Their discipline is tighter and their organisation is better. This legion... Verse 31, and they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Now, a pastor has covered this, passage, this particular verse pretty well. <coughs> Busy stealing my thunder, as he does occasionally. But it's interesting what Matthew says in this, in this parallel passage. Because Matthew says, art thou here to torment us before the time? indicating that they also knew there would be coming a time of torment. I would suggest to you that not only are the demons a lot better organised than most Christians, they know their eschatology a lot better than a lot of Christians do too. They knew what was going to happen. They knew what was coming. And they said, hang on, you're early. We've got more time to run rampant through this world before you throw us out. You've come here too early. These humans are still ours. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there was an herd of many swine feeding on the mountain. <coughs> Remember the oak trees? That's what they were doing. They were eating acorns. That's why they were up there. They were right up on the top. Okay? You wondered what the... I guess, like I say sometimes, am I the only person who asked these, these awkward questions? But I'd wondered, what were the pigs doing there? Who would have 2,000 pigs sitting on the edge of a, of, of a, a piece of sea property? Well, the answer was that there was an oak forest on the top of the mountain, on top of these ridges. And this being autumn, the acorns had fallen and they'd brought the pigs out to fatten on them, as they did in, in uh, these days. In fact, that was still uh, a habit in Europe oh, into the uh, 1800s. They would still bring the pigs out into the oak forests and fatten them on the acorns. So... But then, 
What were the pigs doing then? You say, well, they're fattening on their things. But hang on. This is Jewish land. Why were the pigs there? This is part of Palestine. This is Jewish country. Why were there pigs there? These pigs were defiling the land. Land that had been used to raise pigs was unclean. Secondly, who are you going to sell pork to in Palestine? Who's going to buy it? Well, you're going to open up a, a, a ham and bacon shop next to the temple in Jerusalem? It's, it, so the question, who wants these pigs? Well, there's an answer. You know who was very fond of ham and pork? The Romans. Ah. Oh. These people had not only defiled their religion by raising pigs, they were betraying their nation by supplying provisions to an occupying army. This was religiously unclean and politically wrong. These pigs had to go. These pigs had to go just as the money changes in the temple had to go. We sometimes think that Jesus was being mean and unfair to these poor pig farmers whose property was now being taken away from them. Listen, they shouldn't have been there. Those pigs had no right to be on Jewish land. You go into Israel now, you don't find pig farms. Why? Because you just can't do that. They shouldn't have been there and Jesus was cleansing the land as much as he was cleansing the man so verse 31 and they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep and there was an herd of many swine feeding on the mountain and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them and he suffered them now you notice he does not send them he does not send them he permits them so even so though he permitted he, he permitted it to happen Jesus did not destroy these people's livelihood he permitted it to happen there is a distinction there that you, that you may need to appreciate then the devils then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked that's what i mentioned before there's a, a one particular steep it's not a a cliff like people think of them running off the edge of a cliff but <coughs> rather it's a very steep sharp drop so they would be running down into the lake And the, verse 34, when they that fed them saw that was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. Now this, is, this again is interesting. The people whose job it was to look after the pigs 
had them camped up in the, the oak forest and when this happened they all ran down. Can you think of another time when herdsmen went and told people about Jesus' arrival? Like at Christmas? One time it was shepherds who went and told everybody what they'd seen and what they'd heard. This time it was pig herders. The reaction, though, was very, very different. Verse 35, And when they, then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They, they also which saw it told them by what means he, he that was possessed of the devils was healed, and then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes around about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear, and he went back up into the ship and returned again. They asked him to leave. They asked him to leave. They had just seen the local crazy man, the local guy that no one could control, cured and their reaction was nah let's get this guy out of here now why would you have that reaction well if he started to clean up the countryside maybe they wondered who was next were they afraid did they just figure that maybe well that's one herd of pigs gone we've got a couple more we don't want to lose them as well why? Why would you cast out and throw away the greatest healer and teacher you could have? <coughs> but they did. And you know what? He left. Jesus Christ is a gentleman and will not stay where he is not wanted. So he left. I want you to look some, at the couple of things I want to look at here. First of all, I want you to look at the comparison of this man who's been cured, who's been healed. Back up in verse 27, it said that there met him a certain man which had devils a long time and wore no clothes. He wore no clothes. But what happens in verse 37? Verse 35, rather, they find him clothed. That's the first difference you'd notice about this man. <coughs> Might have taken a bit, of, bit longer time to get the, uh, the hair cut and a bit less scruffy. But the first immediate thing was that he, before he wore no clothes and they find him sitting at the feet of Jesus wearing clothes. You know, that's an important picture. There's an important picture here. Look over in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. The book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 8. We'll start at verse 7. 
Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour unto him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that, that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Clothing, particularly white clothing, is given in Scripture as a picture of the righteousness which we have in Christ. We're told that the righteousness that we want to clothe ourselves with is like grubby, dirty rags. But the righteousness that is given to us from Christ is like fine white linen. (coughs) Why is the righteousness of Christ depicted as clothing? Because you don't have it of yourself, you put it on from someone else. That's why it's pictured like clothing. Because the righteousness that we have in Christ is not our own. It is given to us from him and we wear it. (coughs) Given to them to wear fine white linen. The righteousness of the saint. This man now wore clothing whereas before he was naked. Secondly. He dwelt in the tombs. He dwelt in tombs. Who lives in tombs? Dead people. We're told that we are dead in trespasses and sins before we're saved. We're dead in trespasses and sins and dead people live in tombs. So he was, very, he was living in the right place. The people who do not know Christ as Saviour, if you don't know him today, you are dead living amongst the dead. Luke chapter 24 verse 5, when the women come to Christ's tomb, the angel says, he's not here. Why seek ye the living amongst the dead? The difference between Life and death is how we're portrayed the difference between being saved and unsaved. You know, you've only got two choices. If you're not alive, what are you? You're dead. (coughs) There is no third choice. There is no other option. If people are not saved, they are dead. And the dead dwell together. But he no longer was living in the tombs. He was seated at the feet of Christ. Before this man, we said he was known to be crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now you go and ask any psychiatric nurse, any psychiatric person who works in that field, What does it mean when people start to self-harm? That's the term they use now. Self-harming behaviour. It means they are seriously in need of help. They have a real mental problem. People who injure themselves are in desperate need of help. But what does it say of this man now? 
that he was sitting in his right mind. It's very simple. When people injure themselves deliberately, they are not in their right mind. Sane people don't do that. But this man did until he met Christ. And then he was, he was now found to be sitting clothed in his right mind at the feet of Christ. The other thing that was said of him was that he broke the chains that he was bound with. People would try and control him. Why? Because he could not control himself. You know, I, I, sometimes people, they, they say, it, they look at the things that happen in the world and they despair and they go, oh, isn't this terrible? You know, I, the older I get, the less surprised I am at the things that people do to themselves and to other people. They just can't control themselves. We put down laws and rules. We think of them as being restrictive like chains, but they're for your own protection. This man was chained up for his own protection and for the protection of people around him and he broke the chains and could not be controlled or restrained. And people will try and tell you be free. Don't have any rules. Don't have any restrictions. And all they're doing is wearing the chains of their own making. Oh, this man, he, when he sat at the feet of Christ after being relieved of this awful condition, didn't need chains anymore. Because he was now in control of himself. It was said, verse 29, that he was driven by these forces into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. People without a knowledge of Christ live in a wilderness live in emptiness they are forever alone you think oh no I've got plenty of friends yeah the loneliest people in the world are those who are surrounded by other people because there is still that loneliness that comes when you're surrounded by others because you're in a wilderness and a loneliness of your own making. As one songwriter put it, your prison is walking through this world all alone. All alone and eternally all alone. But Christ offers you to come and be with him and sit at his feet and as that song goes no never alone no never alone he's promised never to leave me never 
to leave me alone. What a change from being driven in the, into the wilderness to spend your time amongst the dead alone. To be sitting at the feet of Christ. What a change has occurred in this man's life. What a contrast. Hallelujah. What a saviour we see here. It's now morning. This man. I don't know where they got the clothes from. Maybe they borrowed some spares out of the boat. Maybe everybody pitched in a bit of their own clothing. They got him dressed. And he's sitting there with Jesus. And the people come. (coughs) And they say, no, we don't want any part of this. Please leave. So what does this man say? He says, Lord, take me with you. What does Jesus say? He says, verse 37, verse 38 rather, Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him, saying, But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house. Now this, this to me was interesting. And this to me was something that maybe you hadn't realised. There are three requests made to Christ during this, this story. Three requests. A legion of evil, vicious demons ask permission. And he says, go ahead. A group of wicked, unsaved traitors ask him to leave. And he says, okay. And a regenerate, born again, child of God says, can I come with you? And Jesus says, no. No. What does it feel like when God says no? It wasn't that this man wanted to do something wrong. It wasn't that he wanted to do something evil. He wanted to spend more time with Jesus and more time with the disciples. That's a good thing, isn't it? God says no. What does he say? He says, Return to thine own house and show how great things God hath done for thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. You know, if anybody, if you ever go to a place and they preach to you that God wants you to be happy, and wealthy and healthy and smiling all the day long they're not reading the same Bible we are they're not preaching the same gospel we are there are times when you will want to do things for God and you will feel 
hey this would be good and God will say no I've got something else for you to do Paul prayed three times for help with a physical affliction and he was told no my grace is sufficient for you you don't need a cure you need to learn to live with it and depend on me in Acts 16 Paul tried twice to preach the gospel in Asia and both times he was told no. Why? Were the people in Asia any less in need of the gospel than the people in Europe? No, they needed to know too. But God said no, you do it this way. It is not when we desire the bad. Hey, that's easy. When I want to do something wrong and God says no, hey, I, I, can, I, I understand that. That's, that's real easy to understand. But it's when we desire to do the good and we're told no, that's when it hurts. And the reason is because God does not necessarily want us to do just that which is good. He wants us to do that which is best. And the good will forever be the enemy of the best. We want the second rate achievement. And God wants us to do the first rate achievement. Brethren, I'm talking here of the things which sometimes are hard to be understood and hard to do. These are not the doctrines of the babies this is the deep things that come to the more mature Christian who needs to work their way through and understand these things I'm speaking to adults here grown up Christians you will want to do good things and will not be able to because God will want you to do the best things the essential things that he wants you to do and you will not understand it so what did this man do? He went, he told, he taught. Now if it just ended there, you'd think, well, you know, okay, so, bit of a, you know, anti-climax here. Turn over please to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Because here, is something interesting. Mark chapter 6. <coughs> Look in verse 53 of Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 verse 53 says, And when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. You know what Gennesaret is? That's an alternate spelling for Gadarene. Yes, same place. This is when Jesus came back to this area. Because you find that the story that we're looking through here is in Mark chapter 5. This is Mark chapter 6. They've come back. They come back and they came into the land of Gennesaret and drew to the shore and when they were come out of the strip, the ship straightway they knew him. These people knew who Jesus was. 
straight away and ran throughout that whole region round about and began to carry about in beds those that were sick and where they heard he was and wherever he entered into villages or cities or country they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that he might touch if it were just the border of his garment and as many as touched him were made whole. That's what happened. That's what was the result of one man doing what God wanted him to do, not what he wanted to do. The result was that a few weeks later, when Jesus came back into this area, people were running everywhere, grabbing everybody who was sick and in need of help and pulling them out into the streets and if Jesus' clothes just brushed them and they reached up and touched him, they were healed. What a, do you, what a revival, what a change in an area. And I'll bet you there weren't any pig farms there either. This area was completely changed because one person put their own desires and needs aside and did what God wanted them to do. You know, we want to do the good because it's good to us. God wants us to do the best because it's the best to him. Two questions for you today. Where are you on that beach? Are you still lost and alone? Alone and without hope and without hope? Eternally alone is what you'll be if you do not come to Christ. He comes offering you freedom, offering you Release from the things that oppress you. He comes offering you the righteousness of the saints. He comes offering you a right mind for the first time in your life. He comes offering you fellowship and eternal safety and security. If you'll take it and not send him away. Christian, are you wanting to do the good? What seems good to you? Or are you wanting to do the best? What Jesus has told you to do? Where will you go? Will you follow what you want to do? Or will you say, no, if Jesus has sent me here, then that's where I'll go. If you will follow him and his word and his commands, who knows what will happen when he comes back next time? When someone preaches the word in that area again, because you've done the groundwork and you've done the the hard yards to start this off. There's a message here. This was a scary place to be. This was a place of evil and fear, of darkness and sorrow. 
And the visit of Jesus Christ turned it into a place of rejoicing and healing and light. He comes to you offering you that. Will you accept it? Will you take it? This day, if you've decided that no more will you be bound by the things of the world, the flesh and the devil, if you want to talk to somebody, after this service, talk to me. Talk to Pastor Frank. Talk to somebody. And we'll show you how there's true freedom and true relief and true life waiting at the call of Jesus Christ. Thank you.